Hello, and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and here with me is Richard Capriola. Richard has been a mental health and substance abuse counselor for over two decades. He has treated adolescents and adults diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issues. He is the author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Please help me welcome Richard to the podcast. Richard, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Hector. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program to talk about this topic uh, and help parents uh, and others interested in adolescent substance abuse learn a few things about it and hopefully be a little bit better prepared. And let's go ahead and start with you. Who is Richard Capriola? Well, I have had a long history of working in education. I was an education administrator for over 30 years. I transitioned from that into the mental health field and started working as a crisis counselor and then went back to uh, the University of Illinois and um, received a master's degree in uh, substance abuse counseling, was offered a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital that serves both adolescents and adults. I was hired to be an addictions counselor. So for over a decade, I worked at Menninger Clinic treating uh, adolescents uh, and adults diagnosed with both mental health issues as well as substance abuse issues. And uh, along the way, met many parents who were struggling with this issue of having a child who's abusing a substance. And you said you were an administrator for 30 years? I worked uh, for the State Board of Education uh, for uh, for around 30 years and then uh, retired from that and got into uh, mental health and substance abuse counseling. And what prompted that shift? Well, I actually started working part-time at the mental health center while I was with the State Board of Education. So I was working part-time there. Um, As I got closer to uh, retiring from the state of Illinois, I then transitioned uh, because I I was still like I was in early 50s when I retired. So um, I wanted to continue working. Uh, and because I had been working at the mental health center for a number of years, uh, I, had a, I had an interest in helping people with uh, mental health issues and then got into substance abuse. So I really transitioned from education into this field. Is there anything that sparked your interest in this particular field? I think as a result of working at the crisis center where I saw so many people coming from the hospital into the crisis center, uh, they were sent there because they were struggling with a mental health issue, but so many of them also had an alcohol or a drug problem as well. That really sparked my interest in terms of going back to school, learning more about substance abuse and, and, and trying to help this, this part of the population. So we'll go ahead and start at the beginning. Around what age would you say that parents should have a keen understanding of substance abuse and the fact that my child could possibly be influenced by classmates, peers, people that he hangs out, they hang out with in the neighborhood? What age in particular? I would say it's never too early or never too late for a parent to learn this information. Um, Your child might be 
in the preteen ages, maybe seven, eight, nine years old. Your child might be in middle school or high school. Uh, there is never a time that is not appropriate. So I would recommend to every parent, regardless of the age of their child, that they learn as much as they can about this subject. And that's why I wrote my book, The, the Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. It only runs about 100 pages, but it is packed with information that I think parents will find helpful. So many times I would, I would sit across from a, a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance and give them the diagnosis of a substance use disorder for their child. And after hearing their child's history, they would look across at me and they would say something like, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, well, I sort of knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So uh, these were good parents. These are good people. These are good parents doing the best that they can. But often they would say, how did I miss the warning signs? How did I not see this? Well, they missed the warning signs because nobody ever told them what to look for, what the warning signs were. So I, my advice to parents is learn as much as you can about this topic, learn what the warning signs are, know what's available, know what assessments are, and hopefully you'll feel more confident if you have to confront this issue. Richard, at what age would you say is the best time for a parent to talk to their child about drugs and substance abuse? I would say the earlier, the better, but the, but the discussion needs to be age appropriate. You'll have a different discussion with a seven or an eight or a nine-year-old than you will with a 15 or 16 or a 17-year-old. So if you're raising very young preteen children, you can start the process at that age and you can do it from an education perspective, a curiosity perspective. What you want to do is help the child understand the need to protect their brain. And you can do that in some very simple ways. There are ways in which you can help the child understand that their brain is growing and developing. There are ways that you can help your child understand what different areas of the brain are used for and how important they are. And at a very young age, just the simple concept of helping the child understand the importance of their brain and the need to protect that brain. That can be done at six and seven and eight years old. As they get into closer uh, adolescence into early teenage, then you can start to introduce subjects like, you know, how does marijuana work in the brain? How do these different drugs work in the brain? Let's take a look and see how these substances work in the brain. So it really is an education process starting at the very elementary years and working its way through uh, middle school and high school. And as the child gets older, the education can become a little bit more sophisticated. But early on, at least you can introduce the concept of protecting your brain. We know that there are times when parents themselves are the aggregators. They're the ones that introduce these substances to the kids. But my, my question to you is, and it could be a challenging one, what is the youngest child you've seen that was influenced into taking a, a substance that wasn't directly from the parent. It was somebody in their outside environment, a friend, a neighbor, something. 
what's the earliest you've seen a child be influenced in that way? I would say it would be um, early teenage years, um, you know, 12, 13. I have seen some instances of younger children getting into what we call inhalants, which are products they can find around the house and sniff like glue and, and things like that, paint thinner. Um, but I, I, I would say the majority of, of teenagers that I have treated fall within the age range of 13 to 14 to 17. I think that becomes a very vulnerable age limit for them them when they are subject to peer pressure, perhaps bullying in some cases. Um, the other thing I would say about that is every child is vulnerable to being captured by alcohol or drugs. There is no totally protected child. There are protective environments, but no child is totally protected. It doesn't matter where you live, urban, rural, suburban. It doesn't matter the level of income that your family has. It doesn't matter the school that you have your kids in or the neighborhood you live in. Every child is vulnerable to getting captured by some type of substance. So let's go ahead and start with these younger kids. Uh, you've seen cases, again, you've said, I think, seven, eight, or nine, in which they find inhalants in the house and they start sniffing it. Can you go a little bit more into that? I think it's because they're so readily available. These substances are every, just about every single house. Uh, many times as parents, uh, uh, they don't secure these. They're easily accessible to the child. The child might be curious about it. Uh, they might uh, experiment with it. They may have learned about it from a friend. What makes them so, so dangerous is that our brains are in the process of developing through adolescent years. Our brains don't get fully developed until around age 24, 25. So the younger the child is, the less developed and more vulnerable the brain is. And because we see uh, inhalant use at a very, very young age, often pre-teenage years, that has the potential of being much more damaging to the child's brain. The way these inhalants work is they give a very rapid high, but it doesn't last very long. So therefore, the child is likely to rapidly continue to use it to maintain that high, which can be very dangerous. If a parent were to see or find their child purposely sniffing an alcohol or anything that is considered an inhalant, what are the steps that they should take? Well, first of all, they need to secure anything that is of an inhalant nature, glues, uh, paint thinner, paint, uh, anything that has a, uh, uh, an inhalant feature to it so that the child does not have easy access to it. That's the first thing they should do. Number and, one. Cer and certainly if they catch their kid using that, uh, they definitely need to, to, to secure that product. And they need to have a discussion with the child about how dangerous this can be for them so that the child understands there's a reason why you're taking it away and, and keeping it from them. Is catching a child with an inhalant, you said a conversation is important. And I definitely want to draw the line here between a conversation and discipline. 
is this something to ground a child for is should they just have a con should parents just have a conversation and leave it at that what kind of life or what kind of connection should parents have with their child after an episode like this well, if it's a single episode, this is the first time you've caught the child doing it. I think it's appropriate to have a discussion with the child, an age appropriate discussion. Obviously, if the child is six or seven, you're going to have a, a type of discussion that would be a little bit different than if the child is 10, 11 or 12. Uh, but regardless of that, I think the child needs to understand why you're taking the action that you're taking, that it's not arbitrary, that there's a reason behind your, your action. And, and hopefully use that as a moment to educate that child, uh, you know, again, in an appro age appropriate way of the dangers of, of that behavior. And, and it doesn't need to be any great exercise of education. It can be as simple as helping the child understand the need to protect their brain and how these substances can harm the brain. So now, if this is a behavior that repeats itself, then I think it's a more serious situation and your, be, and your, and your action will be much different. If the parent becomes paranoid and continues to check on their child to make sure that they're not repeating this behavior, what do you think can, what, is, what would be the best strategy for a parent not to be paranoid and always checking up on them after this first episode? Well, I think the best thing to do is make sure uh, that you secure any of these uh, products that you have in your house. Just go through the entire house, do an inventory and, and, and put away, secure anything that, that might be used as an inhalant. And I think that's going to help the parent feel a little bit more secure and a little bit more safe, knowing that they've gone through the house, they've identified every potential uh, uh, item that the child might use to inhale and has locked it up. Um, and, 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 and maybe for a little bit of time that the, the parent is going to continue to be anxious, going to continue to worry, is going to continue to check on the child. But I think as, as they begin to, to see that the child's no longer using Using the substance, I think that fear will subside. And so let's move on. So you now have seven, eight, nine. Now you're getting into the tens and elevens. You're, you're, you're approaching fifth grade. And so the, the, there comes one a point in a child's life in which it's not just my parents anymore that I look up to. I'm being influenced by my friends, my cousins, my classmates. And so what kind of conversations should parents start having with their kids when they see or when they start to see that they are being influenced in a good way, in a bad way, by friends, family members, cousins, classmates, etc.? Well, I think in my experience, what works with teenagers is, well, let me, let me say what doesn't work with teenagers. What doesn't work are, you know, telling them it's illegal, telling them that uh, their grades might drop if they continue to use a substance or they might not graduate or they might not get into college or might not get a job. That, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything to them because they don't believe it. So what does work? What I found worked is a neuroscience education approach because kids are interested in their brain, 
how their brain works, what different areas of the brain are responsible for doing, and how substances affect those areas of the brain. Um, I worked with a lot of kids who were smoking marijuana multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking marijuana, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. So that's another issue that that many times, once we get past the substance abuse and we dig deeper, we often find a child is using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue like anxiety, depression, trauma, abuse, or whatever. Um, And many times that gets overlooked because we're focusing on the drug. Um, But what I did find that worked with teenagers was a neuroscience approach. When I could show them the different areas of the brain and what they were responsible for, and then I could show them how marijuana attached itself to various areas of the brain, they immediately were able to see how marijuana had an impact on some of the things that they were doing. These were all very, very, very bright kids. Their IQs were above average and and higher. But when their psychological test came back, what I noticed was that the processing speed of their brain was below average, their short-term memory was impaired, and their motivation was curtailed. Now, was all that due to marijuana? Probably not. Was marijuana contributing to it? Yes, probably so. But they had to see that for themselves. And when I could show them the different areas of the brain and what it was responsible for and how marijuana attached itself to the brain, they could see for themselves how it was affecting them. So that's a long story to basically say, if we're going to try and help kids, particularly in our school system, we need to focus on a neuroscience approach towards education. The just say no stuff, having an assembly once a year, that's not gonna work. We need a neuroscience approach that starts in elementary school and is reinforced every single year through high school. You flipped my world upside down because when I was in elementary school, the this thought process stayed constant all the way up into high school and and after like college and growing up it kind of just lingered as a thought and the thought is is that the number one and probably the only reason why somebody young would do drugs is to be popular is to be cool is to fit in and then at one point they got addicted to it that you just flipped that on its head and told me that the young kids that are taking these substances are doing it for anxiety? Well, I think, I think there is no just one general rule that fits every kid. Certainly some kids get introduced and start using a drug because of peer pressure, because of peer influences, perhaps out of curiosity. They just want to see what that feeling is like. And if it's a good feeling, then they continue. If it's a bad feeling, they stop. So some kids will will get introduced to a drug through uh, friends, 
through peers. Some will do it through peer pressure. Uh, lots of different reasons as to why kids will start on a drug. For some of them, certainly not all of them, but for some of them, there's an underlying psychological issue that that child is using the drug to medicate. In, in many ways, the same way that adults do. You know, if, if we have an uncomfortable feeling or a thought or a memory, we don't like sitting with that. Uh, we want to get it resolved. And adults, as well as kids, if they stumble on a substance that resolves that issue quickly, they're likely to continue to use it. So it might be anxiety, it could be depression, um, it could be peer pressure, peer influence. Uh, like I say, there is no one rule that fits every kid. Uh, every kid has a different route to getting into substance use. You know, as a motivational speaker, I always try to teach people that you can't stop the wave. It's going to come and you can either try to fight it and hold on or you can learn to ride the wave. You can learn how to surf. And yeah. I'm glad that you that you mentioned that even adults don't like the bad thoughts. And trust me, it's part of life and they're going to come whether you want it to or not. And you just have to learn how to ride the wave. And it's something that it takes time and it takes practice. And it's something that is not taught in schools, right? I try to teach it to my kids, but I can't, I don't have the power to write a curriculum. I don't have the power to write an, an entire class or, or create a class or an elective on mental health. I, and I really do hope that at one point there will be a mental health class because I think it's very needed in our society. You, okay, so you said peer pressure and curiosity. Now going back to this anxiety thing, because it has really piqued my interest. Has, do you, have you ever heard of a student starting a drug because of anxiety? Um, yes. Uh, many of the kids that, uh, that I worked with, like, like I was explaining earlier, when I asked them to help me understand why they smoke so much marijuana, they would come back and they say, well, it helps me with my anxiety. It's the only thing that I found that really helps my anxiety. Um, so, you know, once they latch on to something that resolves an issue, they're likely to continue with it. Now, how they got introduced to marijuana, that could be any number of routes. It might have been out of curiosity. It might have been a, a friend who said, hey, I've got anxiety and I find this, that this works for me. Why don't you try it? A lot of different routes. Let me go with that line because that's the most curious. Hey, I have anxiety, but marijuana helps me out. Do you want to give it a shot? Is that necessarily peer pressure, though? There's no pressure. The, the, it looks, sounds like the person is just going to try it based on the friend's suggestion. Yeah, that's not peer pressure. <clears throat> that's just basically, oh, maybe it'll work for me, too. I think I'll give it a try. Uh, peer pressure seems to be more when you're running around with a crowd of your friends and they start smoking marijuana and maybe you sort of resisted at first. And then they start pressuring you and urging you on and on and on. And eventually you just give way to it. That's that's more of the peer pressure. I know that we've been going on the train with marijuana and mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of stereotypes with that particular drug and we'll go with the most obvious do you richard believe that marijuana is quote unquote a gateway drug i i don't think it's a general rule 
that a child who's smoking marijuana is going to step up to a more hardcore illicit drug. Certainly that's a possibility. Certainly there's a vulnerability to that. But um, uh, the kids that, that I was working with, uh, they were just staying with marijuana. Now, you know, later on in years, you know, is there a possibility that because they found a relief in, in marijuana that they could try something else? Yeah, that's certainly possible. But I don't think because a child is using marijuana that they're destined to move to harder core drugs. Are there any long-term studies as to what marijuana does to the brain? Well, what I've seen in adolescence, uh, based on the psychological and the neuropsychological tests that I have seen come back, is that for kids who are uh, chronically using it, um, the processing speed of their brain is, is many times below average. Uh, their short-term memory is uh, curtailed, and their motivation is, is very low. There have been some studies that show that uh, for adults, not, not kids, but for adults who have a history of, of a thought disorder or schizophrenia, that there is a possibility that smoking marijuana could make those symptoms much more worse. So anybody who has a history of psychosis or schizophrenia, uh, when they are using marijuana, uh, they are running the risk of having a serious relapse. And so let's go back to the parents. What are the warning signs every parent should know? In my book, I have warning signs for alcohol use. I have warning signs for a kid who might be using marijuana. I have warning signs for a child that might be self-injuring themselves. I have warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder because sometimes, not every case, but sometimes a child will have both an eating disorder or will be self-harming themselves and also using a substance. So parents need to be aware of what those warning signs are. And those are listed in my book. But as a general rule, what I recommend to parents is pay attention to the changes you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. So pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that what the changes you're seeing are just normal adolescent acting out. May, they may very well be, but they also might be an indication that there's something else going on underneath the surface. So for example, you may have a child who was earning very good grades and now the grades are starting to decline. You may have a child that was very social and outgoing, now becomes very quiet and reserved. You may have a child who used to participate and enjoy uh, playing sports no longer wants to do so. You may have a child who very openly introduced you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their family members were. Now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. So those are just a few examples of, of behavior changes that, that, that if you observe them, you need to be curious as to what you're seeing. And also, you need to be aware of um, how long these changes last. If they last a day or two, it might not be a big deal. But if these changes sort of linger on for days and weeks, and the more of these changes you see, you start to see one, and then you see another, then you see two or three, then I think it's time to be concerned and see if there's an issue that's underneath the surface and get the assessments done that I recommend in my book. And how can parents 
straddle the line between, oh, it's just puberty. They're just going through this phase versus, oh, wow, there may be something wrong. I, I, th I think, first of all, if you, if you begin to suspect something's going on and you're concerned, um, what you don't want to do is just not do anything. Uh, or to assume it's just adolescent acting out behavior. If you're concerned as a parent, you need to get the professional assessments done that I recommend so that you have the professionals do the assessments, give you the diagnosis, rule conditions either in or rule them out, and give you a treatment plan on how to move forward. It's very important that you get those assessments done. And what are some of those assessments that are important for a diagnosis? Uh, you'll need an addictions assessment, which is what I was doing. That's going to give you the information on what substances your child has been using, how often they've been using, and a diagnosis, of a, if it's appropriate, of a substance use disorder. And it's also going to tell you if it's in the category of mild, moderate, or severe. But you need more than that. Uh, you, you need a, a psychological assessment or a neuropsychological assessment to let you know if there are any underlying issues that need to be addressed, either rule them in or rule, their out, rule them out that might be contributing to your child's use of a substance. Um, and then you probably need a good complete physical exam to make sure that there's not anything medically that might be contributing to the behaviors you're seeing. And what are some treatment options uh, out there? There is no one treatment that fits every child. It very much is tied to the specific diagnosis and to the specific treatment plan. The range of treatment goes from an outpatient where uh, a child can do very well in an outpatient program where they see somebody you know, maybe once or twice a week uh, to an intensive outpatient program where they see somebody multiple times a week to a residential program where they are in a 24-hour treatment program for weeks and sometimes months. The type of program that's appropriate for the child is based on the diagnosis and the treatment plan. For many parents, the nightmare of my child is abusing drugs is real. And once that threshold is passed, what should parents do once that threshold is passed? Well, I think once they get past the threshold of, of, of recognizing their child's been using a substance, um, they need to get the assessments done and they need to follow through with the treatment plan to get that child help as soon as possible. The earlier you can intervene, the more likely you are to get past this. But I would also say that um, parents need help too. Uh, it's not just the child, because many times parents are struggling with their own feelings, their own emotions. Sometimes they feel guilty. Sometimes they feel angry. Sometimes they question what kind of a parent they are. So my advice to parents is take care of yourself. Find somebody that can be there for you. Get the support you need. Um, and then I would say that there is hope. There is hope for both your child and yourself and your family. You can get through this. There is effective treatment and there are good outcomes. This is actually one of those instances in which I constantly use the analogy of you're on a plane, it's going down and the breathing mask come out and 
the rule is, is that, yes, you're supposed to put the breathing mask on yourself before helping another person. And I would tend to agree with that. However, the person next to you is on drugs. It's not, it would, putting the, the breathing mask on you when there's somebody on substance abuse next to you seems very trivial. Uh, your instinct, I think, as a parent is, oh my God, I need to get the breathing mask on my child as fast as possible and I'll worry about me later. And I think that's an instinct. Uh, do you, Should we fight for parents that find themselves in that position? Should they fight that urge and still continue putting the breathing mask on themselves first? I think the first thing they need to do is uh, take care of their child. That's the most important thing. Um, you know, uh, parents need help. Yes, they need to take care of themselves. Absolutely. But they first need to intervene and make sure that that child is getting assessed and getting into treatment and then be better prepared to, to go with that child through the treatment process. So my first response is, if you su suspect your child is using a substance, you need to intervene immediately and take care of that situation with the child. You can take care of yourself later, but this could be a life-threatening uh, situation and you need to act. So you would agree. In that situation, you put the breathing mask on your child first before yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. And you said that these times in which students are brought into the cafeteria or auditorium and they do a, a say no to drugs campaign once a year is just not going to cut it. What can administrators or even teachers do more consistently to get that message out there of say no to drugs? Introduce a neuroscience approach to substance abuse. And that's about as simple as I can say it. Regardless of what grade you teach at, you can, or you can introduce a neuroscience approach to substance abuse. Get away from the legality. I mean, you can talk about how they're illegal and all of that. But what I found works with teenagers is the neuroscience approach because they're, they're interested in their brain, they're interested in education, and they want to learn. So focus on the neuroscience approach and then reinforce it every single year. So this can't be something that one teacher does once a year, or you have one assembly that you talk about how you shouldn't use drugs once a year. This really has to be built into the curriculum throughout the entire K through 12 grade system so that it is reinforced every single year. Kids hear the same message, the neuroscience message over and over and over. It has been a while since students have been in the classroom. We're talking now in the midst of a pandemic and some of these kids will be brought back to the classroom for the first time in many months, like almost 18 months. How has the pandemic impacted teen mental health and compulsive behaviors? That's a great question. Um, the Centers for Disease Control uh, has already noted that since the pandemic began, well over a year ago, there has been a substantial increase in the number, the percentage of emergency room visits by grade school children who need mental health care. 
And there's also been an increase in mental health needs for teenagers urgently in need of some type of mental health care. This pandemic has disrupted the lives of not only adults, but adolescents and teenagers uh, for a long, long period of time. And I think we are just beginning to see the mental health impact of what the pandemic has done to, to adults and to, uh, and to adolescents. Um, we're just scratching the surface on, on, on some of those effects. And now as kids move back into the traditional classroom setting, I think for some kids, not all kids, but for some kids, that might be a, a difficult transition for them to get back into the regular classroom situation with all the anxiety and all the fears that are out there. And teachers and school administrators need to be aware of, of that. But there's no question that this pandemic has taken a toll on on, on, on the mental health of, of adults, uh, as well as kids. Richard, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Why don't you go ahead and tell my audience where they can find you and tell them a little bit more about your book. Uh, the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. I wrote it uh, uh, to be very concise because I know parents don't have time to read two and 300 pages uh, to, to get this information. So I kept it at around 107 pages. Each chapter is packed with information. There's a review of street drugs so that parents are aware of what drugs are out there. There's a chapter on the neuroscience so that they can understand how drugs work in the brain. Um, there are warning signs throughout the book. There are chapters on how to look for a good treatment program and what questions a parent should ask of a potential treatment provider. And then there are resources. All of that is in the book. The book's available as a, as a Kindle for people who like to read on the Kindle. It's available in a paperback. And there's also a, a brief parent workbook uh, that parents can order. All of that is available on Amazon. It's also available through the book's website, which is www helptheaddictedchild.com, helptheaddictedchild.com. If you go to that website, you can read endorsements, you can read book reviews, you can read a sample chapter, and there's a link that'll take you directly to Amazon where you can order the book as either a Kindle or a paperback. There's also a link where you can send me a note or ask me a question or send me a comment. Are you on any social media channels? Um, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, those are probably the three uh, that I spend most of the time on. Richard, any last thoughts or messages to the audience? I would say if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a teacher, um, Take the time to, um, to, to learn about this issue. Uh, take the time to read the book. Uh, keep the book as a handy resource. If you don't need it, you might know another family that will. And hopefully, after reading the book, you will feel uh, more confident, more prepared to deal with this issue if it comes up, and less fearful of it. That's my goal. Richard, again, thank you for coming on to my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Hector, for having me on the program. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak to me about this very important topic. So thank you. I appreciate it. This was Adolescent Substance Abuse with Richard Capriola. And this is the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time. Bye.